Thank you for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. For those who haven't yet heard, we've finally made our move into our new home in central Missoula. We'd love to see you Sunday mornings at 2010 3rd Avenue West and hope you're blessed by this online resource. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we know that um, you are wonderfully sufficient to meet us in our weakness. And there's hardly a text that speaks more of that than the one we are in today, which Johnny just read for us. And so Lord, as we consider the call to follow you, may this moment be a time of denying ourselves, of putting aside the burden of thinking through the lunch that we have to prepare or what we need to get done before school or work starts tomorrow, but to deny ourselves and to pick up our cross and to follow you. Lord, we know that you bless this endeavor for you have shown us that in Jesus. We pray this in your name, amen. In 1955, a 30-year-old Montana native boy sat down to write a poem. And this is what he wrote. He said, there is a seeking of honest love drawn from a soul storm-tossed, a seeking for the gain of Christ to bless the blinded, the beaten, the lost. Those who sought heavenly love were filled with joy divine. They walk today with Christ above. And now you want the last line. But I'm not going to give it to you right now. I'm going to let you sit in that unresolved poetic meter, in that tension that's there, because this experience of not knowing that ending but longing for it is actually the subtext of our whole scripture passage today. This poem, even with its missing line, speaks of the beauty of seeking Christ, which is also described as seeking love, finding gain, and walking with Jesus. And these themes if you remember what was just read for us, drip from our passage today in the book of Luke. And we're to a moment in Luke's account of the gospel of Jesus Christ where the scene has shifted away from Jesus on his own towards the relationship Jesus has with his disciples and the relationship Jesus' disciples have with him. And this is keenly important for us because if you wish to be a Christian, you must know what a disciple is. Runners know how to run. Swimmers know how to swim. Cooks know how to cook. Christians know how to be disciples. It's central to us here at Sovereign Hope. As a church, we exist to glorify God and love others by being disciples and making disciples. But discipleship is central to us because it's central to God's word. It's central to Jesus. You cannot be a Christian without following Jesus. You can't help other people follow Jesus if you don't know what it looks like to follow Jesus for yourself. And what our text shows us today is in the relationship between a disciple and Jesus that sometimes the call to follow him is costly. But as that poem mentioned, it is also costly, divine, and beautiful gain. And in order to understand that tension, we need to continue to understand who Jesus is. Last week in the feeding of the 5,000, we saw that if we want to understand what we gain in the gospel, we need to understand what we gain in Jesus, who is the Christ. How is Jesus the Messiah? And because he's the Messiah, how does that speak to our need everywhere? If God has given us Jesus, then how do we understand God's provision in everything else? This week, 
we're going to see that we cannot understand what we're going to go through for the sake of the gospel if we do not understand what Jesus himself is going to go through in his own life in ministry. In other words, your understanding of Jesus, or excuse me, your understanding of following Jesus is shaped by your understanding of Jesus. That might seem self-evident, but for Luke, this is important for us to see. If we miss this, we will never know what it looks like to follow Jesus, and we'll always wrestle with that reality. In a world which constantly calls us to look inward for understanding, for perspective, and for motivation, what Jesus is doing here, what Luke is doing by showing us this, is he's calling us to look upward and outward for understanding, for prioritization, and for motivation. And that is specifically to look outward as a disciple upon Jesus and upon the cross. And this is going to be our main point today. The wonder and weight of discipleship is shaped by the wonder and weight of the cross. And we're going to see this in three ways today in Luke chapter 9. First, we're going to see the experience of the Christ. Then we're going to see the expectation of the Christian. And then lastly, we're going to see the assurance of the kingdom. So to begin, let's read a little bit of what we read last week, and then we'll develop that a little more. So verses 18 through 22. Now it happened that as he, that's Jesus, was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah. And others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged them and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And so already we encounter a bit of that tension that we first felt in the missing line of the poem. Peter's confession that Jesus is God's Christ, God's Messiah, God's anointed one is the centerpiece of the story so far. It is arguably the center of the book of Luke and it is most certainly the center of your life, whether you agree with that statement or not. There's nothing more crucial to the understanding of human history than the confession that Jesus is God's Christ. Yet right after this confession is made, Jesus warns, severely instructs, and commands those disciples to say nothing of it, to tell no one of what they just confessed to be true. Here is the tension. Now, why would Jesus do this? Well, this is what leads us to our first point this morning. This is the experience of the Christ. Jesus himself knows that unless we have a full picture of who he is, and what he came to do, we will always wrestle with truly understanding the gospel, the good news. The good news is contingent upon knowing what the good news actually is. Without understanding the experience of Jesus, we want to dictate the terms of our own experience of following Jesus. In verse 24, Jesus says, as we'll look at in a little bit, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will gain it. And while this is a warning, it is also an admission that's at the heart of all humanity. Each and every one of us 
is searching for salvation, whether you use that language or not. There is a fear at the center of your heart that you will lose your life lest you do something. And that is whether you look inside and you see fault or you look outside and you see brokenness, we know innately and intuitively that there is something we need deliverance from. It is that longing that is at the first cry of any newborn child ever born is a longing for salvation. And if you went around this neighborhood that we live in and you knocked on doors and you asked people, what is it that you need to be delivered from in your life? What is it that would fix your experience in this world? My guess is you would get all sorts of answers. And Jesus knew that if our understanding of Jesus as the Christ was simply our understanding as Jesus, as the Christ of our own choosing, the Messiah of what we think we need to be delivered from, the savior from our own felt need, that the salvation we might expect or assume might not be the salvation we actually need. I can't tell you how many times my kids come to me and say, I'm hungry, can I have a piece of candy? <laughs> they want that, but it's not actually going to solve their need. It's not going to help them. Everyone longs for salvation, but without the help of Jesus, we want to dictate the terms of that salvation. And in so doing, we often miss what we truly need because the greatest problem of our hearts is that they are blind and they don't know what they need. In fact, it was right around this time in John's account of Jesus's ministry where we see this. So right after the feeding of the 5,000, this is how Jesus' disciples misinterpreted the expectation. The disciples, broadly speaking, not just the 12. John 6, verses 13 through 15. And so they gathered them up and filled the 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. And then they have a plan for what they're going to do with this prophet. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. See, the Jews, if you ask the Jews, any of these Jews, what their biggest problem was in life, it would have almost been universal, Rome. Rome was the problem. Rome controlled their lands, ruled over their temples, taxed their worship, and impinged on God's promise for his kingdom. So if God's Messiah had come, God's anointed king, what they would expect is victory, victory, and only victory. Riding down to Jerusalem, starting the revolution that failed a couple hundred years earlier, and then from there, working outward conquering northern Judea, moving all the way to Rome and establishing this kingdom of God and ushering a sense of an unrivaled and unparalleled peace where God's kingdom people finally got the respect they always deserved. And we are prone to wrestle with the same kind of misattributed expectations of what it looks like to follow Jesus. None of us worship Jesus apart from seeing him as a hero. That's what drives us to anything in life, is we see that as a solution, we see that as a deliverer, we see that as a savior. But what makes Jesus the hero? In a moment of honest introspection, I want you to answer these questions in your heart right now. Play a little fill in the blank game. So kids, here's your opportunity. Jesus will be my hero if. Jesus is my hero because Jesus 
isn't my hero because? How do you answer those questions? Because just like we saw in John 6, the problem was not that Israel was unaware of their problems. They knew their problems. And as soon as they thought they had the answer, they were going to make Jesus king and fix it. We know we have problems. The problem is, is we don't know what to do with those problems. We search for the right solutions in the wrong places. And Jesus commanded the disciples to silence here because the greatest clarity about our problem and our solution is seen not simply in Jesus's claim to be the Messiah. Why? How many people claim to be the Messiah? They probably don't use that term. We're in the midst of midterms. Vote for this person and all your problems will be fixed. Give to this cause and you will end this woe. Those are messianic claims. But it's not in the claim that validates the person, but in the work that validates the Messiah. Jesus' work as the Messiah is the greatest picture of clarity regarding our relationship to the Messiah. The shape of Jesus' life would show us the shape of salvation we desperately need. We not only need to hear that Jesus is God's Messiah, but we need to see how Jesus is God's Messiah. And our greatest need is seen in Jesus' experience in Luke chapter 9, that Jesus, the Messiah of God, is going to suffer. He is going to be rejected. He is going to be killed but he is going to be raised again. Why is he going to suffer, be rejected, die, and rise again? Because our problem was that on account of our sin, our lack of worship of God, our rejection of him as Lord, we were destined to die and suffer eternally. We need Jesus's substitutionary life, suffering, death, rejection, and life because our problem of sin demands all of that. That's our memory verse this week, right? 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he who knew no sin became sin for our sake. Jesus's life looks like our wounds because that's exactly what he came to solve. Look at how Paul puts this, how the cross and the cross alone explains our reality and Jesus's purpose in Colossians 2, 13 through 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, that's Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. It was on the cross where Jesus dealt with the sin and its debt that ensnared us, caused us to suffer, and would ultimately take our life. This is so important for us to understand because our expectations of who Jesus is must be seen through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. If you're new If you're wondering what is at the heart of Christianity, you must see Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. If you've been following Jesus for decades, you must understand Jesus through his perfect life, substitutionary death, and victorious resurrection. And here's why. Here's why theology makes sense. This is why we need it in our lives. This is the application of it. If our greatest need were loneliness, 
Jesus does not need to die. Adam was lonely. He took out a rib and made a woman. If our greatest need were loneliness, God could just do some ribendectomies. I don't know what it's called. He could start raising women up for every man, man for every woman. He could fix that. If our greatest need were political safety, the same God who breathed the boundaries of the galaxy into existence could build a safe wall. He could secure our physical safety. It would not cost him his death. If our greatest need were that never-ending drive for adventure, he would give us the world's greatest map with all of the features of the hidden wonders of the world. He's God. He created it. He knows the lengths of the deepest cavern we haven't found, the way to summit the most miraculous peak that we haven't yet. He knows all of that, and he could have done that while reigning in heaven on high and not treading one foot on this earth. But because our greatest need was the debt of death according to sin and our separation from God, God came down to be with us, and the one who knew only peace would suffer. The one who knew only acceptance in triune existence would face rejection. And the one who knew only eternal life would taste the bitterness of death. We always want to shortcut our ways to glory. But Jesus knew our need is so great that there is no shortcut to the resurrection. There is no solution in your life that you could find that does not look like this man that will solve your greatest need. The lens of the world, if you go out and you say to the person walking on the street, shopping in the mall, attending the football game this weekend, and you say our greatest need is that we are separated from God and our sin has caused us death, they will giggle. Maybe not at you, but later. But what the world views as weakness and waste, and when the world views suffering as shameful, Jesus' own ministry redeems what the world hates by becoming the curse for us, by subjecting himself to all of its woes so that he might triumph over it in his life. You see, here's the beauty of Jesus in the flesh. This is the glory of the incarnation. It's in seeing Jesus' weakness in his earthly ministry that we find life's greatest apologetic. I've said this before. The greatest apologetic for the Christian faith is the incarnation of Jesus Christ. How many times have you heard people bemoan, how can a good God cause bad things to happen to good people? Well, here's the only good and perfect individual, the perfect spotless son of God, and he was going to be afflicted with evil. Or maybe if God is good, then why does he allow suffering? But here God, the God who is transcendent and apart from us, took on flesh, just like you and me, and he was going to suffer, and by his wounds, we will be healed. How can you say that God will bring good out of the evil in this world? Evil is simply what it is. It is arbitrary. It is pointless. It is out of place. But here in the moment of greatest evil, 
in the most spectacular display of injustice, God purposed it according to his sovereign plan at a master level so that good and glory would reign through the death and resurrection of Jesus. You see, the incarnation validates your experience of weakness. We'll talk more about that in these next four weeks. By showing us what our own savior was subjected to for your sake. But it adds something better than simply a king who is able to empathize. It adds a king who is able to triumph. One who rises from the dead and puts to shame, Paul said in Colossians 2, the powers of this world. Jesus, as our brother in the flesh, feels the pain we feel, but Jesus, as the Son of God, would redeem all of it through his resurrection. Out of the temporary affliction of God, he produces eternal glory. You see, we think in absolutes. We live in an era that loves false absolutes, where if you're not 100% for something, you're 100% against it. And we fall into that. The, the life of discipleship is either this— Following Jesus is suffering and only suffering. Or following Jesus is victory and only victory. And depending upon which day of the week, you're one of those. <laughs> but here the cross holds it in tension. You see, knowing the end of the story, I feel like most of us, specifically in the insulated Western world, we skipped to Christianity as victory and only victory. But remember, the disciples at this time didn't go to vacation Bible school. They had no veggie tales. They weren't listening to podcasts. They didn't know that Jesus was speaking of the resurrection that would become the single greatest historical event in the history of humanity, whether you believe it or not. What they heard more than anything else was not, oh yeah, resurrection's coming. Why? Because they were normal people. That's not a normal thing to happen. Instead, what they probably heard was the scandal of shame that would typify the life of their long-awaited hero. But it's in this tension of understanding Jesus' work of redemption that shapes not only what we think about Jesus, but what we think about following Jesus. Weakness in life and victory in death is not only the work of the Savior, it's actually the life of the disciple. And this is our second point this morning, the expectation of the Christian. We've seen the experience of Christ and even as Jesus said earlier, a disciple is not greater than his master. And here we see the expectation of the Christian. Read with me Luke 9, verses 23 through 26. And he said to all, if any would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses and forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him the son of man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the father and of the holy angels. We're stopped there. So one thing I love about our study in the book of Luke is that Jesus makes some things really clear. If, there, if there's two things I want us to take away from our study in the book of Luke so far, and this might be different by the end of the next chapter, the next like six years, however long it takes us to get through Luke. But up until this point, I can say with certainty, nothing will change beyond these two. And that is this. These two facts are what I want you to take away from our study in the book of Luke. One, that Jesus is the Christ of God. That is it. But two, 
that Jesus tells us what discipleship looks like. Jesus cares what you think following him looks like, and he speaks to that. And he speaks to this most clearly in Luke chapter 6 when he describes the wise man. And he says this in Luke chapter 6, verse 47. It says kind of backwards for how we're going to encounter it, but we'll put it together. He says this, Everyone who comes to me and hears my word and does them, I will show you what he is like. What is he like? The wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rains came and the floods uh, raged against it, but the house stood firm. What does discipleship look like according to Jesus? For you, as an individual, if you want to follow Jesus, what do you do? You come to him. There's salvation in no one else. You hear his words and you do them. You apply them. Again, I love the Greek word behind that, do it. It's it's this creative word. It's this artistic word. Do something beautiful with it. What does it look like for you to follow Jesus? Come to him, hear his words, and do something beautiful with it. That scales. What does it look like for us as a church? Come to Jesus together. Hear his words together and make something beautiful together. If you understand those two truths, Jesus is the Christ of God. Come to him, hear him, and do something with his word. The path to glory is so abundantly clear. But here, there's a distinction. In Luke 6, Jesus gives us the ingredients to discipleship. But in Luke chapter 9, he tells us what the flavor of that is like. What's the experience of coming, hearing, and doing like for the individual? Deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. Right after Jesus prepared his disciples for his suffering, rejection, and death, Jesus prepares his disciples for their own suffering, rejection, and death. Now note the distinction here. We're called to deny ourselves as followers of Jesus, but Jesus is not called to deny himself. He was perfect. Though Jesus was like us in every way, he was human. He was bone of bone, flesh of flesh. He was also true God of true God, true light of true light. He was the only one blessed, blameless, holy, perfect, and beautiful. If Jesus were to deny himself, we all need a different savior because we need all of Jesus to save all of us. But we are able to deny ourselves because we have things which should be denied. Many of you have kids in here right now and you're well aware they have some things that need to be denied. (laughs) They have some desires that need to be put on the shelf, some wants that need to be couched for later. We have dreams that conflict with the kingdom of God. We have sins that need to constantly be put to death. We have desires that need to be put down. And most of us understand the role confession plays in following Jesus. Paul makes this really clear in Romans chapter 10, where he says this in verses or in verse nine. But if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you confess, you will be saved. But right after Peter's confession, where Peter shows us the centrality of confessing faith, Jesus also shows us the centrality of denying faith. It's easy to confess faith in Jesus, but true confession, true belief, is also a denial of one's self. To confess Jesus as Lord is to let go of your own claims of lordship. This helps us understand more of of what's meant here. Jesus isn't saying that if anyone is to follow him, you must hate yourself. He's not even saying, this is beautiful in today's world. If there's a place where, you know, the gospel speaks to the spirit of the day, this is it. 
we often think according to our culture, which is all individual expressivism. If you want to be you, be all you. Have no, to deny yourself, nothing is more countercultural than the call to deny yourself. Our culture says satisfy yourself, fulfill yourself, be yourself. All of the Disney songs ever written were written for one person, Jesus. He's the one who should follow his heart. The rest of us, that's terrible advice, okay? But here's the beauty of it. What the world fears is that in denying ourselves, we lose ourselves. But do you notice what Jesus says? He says denying yourself will cause you to lose your life. But he actually says it's, it's in giving up the gain of the world that you find yourself. You see, what the world fears, the losing of oneself, there are so many people who would long to die if it only meant the gaining of themselves. But here Jesus says, this is what it looks like to be who you truly should be. We were created to be with God, ruled by his beautiful rule and in his constant presence. And here is the way forward. It is denying yourself, which is not self-hatred, but instead it is seeing the value of taking up another, of taking up the cross of Christ and following him. In other words, discipleship isn't seeing that our lives have no value at all, Instead, it's seeing the paradox of greater value in the weakness and brokenness of the cross. Why? Because the cross is the way of Jesus. The cross is the way of one who is blessed forever and happy unending. My daughters often build, they've got bunk beds downstairs and they build these forts and they invite me into them. I'm not really a fort-fitting kind of dad. <laughs> and so they try to bring me in there, I don't fit, and I get in there and I ruin it all. <laughs> It's like a bowl in a china closet is more better described as a Tyler in his daughter's fort. I don't fit. We don't naturally fit in the way of salvation. We would ruin it. But Jesus gives us the cross, which stoops our shoulders and bends our knees and causes us to fall behind the work that he has already done. He has borne his cross for us so that we can bear our own behind him. He has borne our sin and death so that we might bear what is little, knowing Christ has borne much, but we still bear it. Charles Spurgeon once said, there will be no crown bearers in heaven who are not cross bearers below. But again, consider the weight of this. Moments ago, the disciples heard for the first time in Jesus' ministry that he was planning on dying. That's not really a great end for your Messiah. And here he's alluding to something about the centrality of a cross, though it wasn't self-evident to his disciples that this was going to be the centerpiece of Christianity. Today, we can't disassociate the cross as a symbol from Christianity. We're going to drive around town. You'll see it on buildings. You'll see it tattooed on people who have no desire to follow Jesus. And there's this sort of romantic attraction to the cross. But today, the significance today is stripped almost entirely of the significance it would have had in that moment for the disciples. The cross, prior to this point, did not identify itself with Christianity. It identified itself with complete and utter shame. It was a form of death and torture reserved for the lowest, most heinous, and ignoble individuals of the day. To carry one's cross was a callback to this act of humiliation that criminals would do of walking through their town, bearing the cross, symbolizing the shame of the very instrument which was about to take their life. There's an aspect of romanticism that stands behind cross-bearing even today, perhaps even for you, 
But let's not mistake the hardship that Jesus is intentionally trying to press upon us. And he explains what this might feel. We know this verse, take up your cross and follow me. But what will it feel like? See, Jesus is being gracious. He's helping you know what to do with your feelings. And here's what's gonna feel like in verses 24 through 26. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does a man profit if he gains the whole world and loses and forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, and the glory of the Father and the glory of the holy angels. What does it mean to deny yourself? It looks like daily picking up the public identity of Jesus. It looks like picking up what is weak and foolish according to the world's standards. And what does that experience feel like? It feels like suffering, the forfeiture of all you would dream of gaining. It feels like rejection. To identify with Jesus, to obey his word over the word of the world is to lead to a choice between who we are willingly going to be shamefully identified with and the counterside of who we're going to wrestle to be approved by. It feels like death. For the call to gain one's life is to lose it for the sake of Jesus. You see, Jesus isn't here preparing us for natural disasters or sickness or unending physical pain that's common to all of us. He is here speaking specifically of enduring awkward glances, shameful remarks, and even death itself for the sake of your allegiance to him and him alone. He is not talking about suffering as a human. He's talking about suffering for being a Christian. And all of this, he says, is to be done daily. The prayer of the Christian is not only for our daily bread, but also for our daily cross. And there is provision in both. Daily provision. What does this daily denial look like? For many of us, it's as simple as losing sleep, waking up earlier to spend time in God's word or praying with him. I know many, many people, I worked in campus ministry for a long amount of time, who they say, I'm not a morning person. And they have great dreams of reading their Bible and praying at night. But I see few people who actually do that. I can think of no greater way. And if you're that person, super. You can go to heaven reading your Bible whenever you want to go to heaven reading your Bible. But what a great reminder to daily take up what will ultimately endure us by making our first act of the day to deny ourselves, to open up God's word, and to remind ourselves that Jesus is faithful even when we're weak. That Jesus is what we need, even when it feels like we have felt needs of sleep, of task lists, of kids who need breakfast. I know for some of us, the call of obedience feels like we're turning away from the very thing that promises life, only to turn to the thing that promises death. I'm the chaplain for the Grizzly football team. You guys can begin to pray. Our first thing is this coming Saturday with the Grizz game. And in talking to those guys, I've, I know the pressure of seeking gain by worldly standards. In athletics, the current currency of profit is untethered sexual freedom. But for the men and women at the University of Montana who seek to glorify Jesus by following him and believing that he knows what's best regarding our sex and sexuality, 
They feel acutely the pain of loss, of looking like you are forfeiting all that is gain by seeking to obey Jesus' words. It is a battle where at every step they feel alone and empty-handed. I know many others who in business, in education, in relationships, the call to obey Jesus leads them directly into public shame with coworkers, friends, boards of accountability. There is a real threat of shame that lurks over each and every one of us and in our flesh, we want to withdraw into the peace of the world rather than shamefully identifying with Jesus. Rosario Butterfield was at one point an openly active, ardent, and accomplished professor, feminist, and lesbian. But Jesus came for her. She came to Jesus. She heard his word. She followed him. She denied herself and sought to carry her cross. And she described her daily cross as this. She said, everyone from the lesbian partner I broke up with to the graduate students in queer theory whose PhD dissertations I could no longer supervise, to the LGBTQ plus undergraduate student groups I could no longer support, they felt the stunning betrayal. I had changed my allegiance. I was disappointing almost everyone I loved because I believed in Jesus, the real Jesus who reveals himself in the Bible. My treachery to my lesbian community was only bearable through my union with Christ. Following Jesus brings daily decisions about shame because it holds up a value system contrary to our world. It can be as significant as Rosaria's experience. It can be, perhaps for those who want to hear more and come tonight, as significant and life-threatening as rejecting and converting from Islam to Christianity. It can be as seemingly arbitrary as something my wife and I are going through. My kids are ages of sports. There are so many sports things that start at like noon on Sundays. And we're all going to do it because I'm here. And I feel the shame of not letting my kids flourish. Of not opening up every door for them. That my son is not going to make the NFL because he didn't play nine-year-old flag football. It's silly, but it's real. And what do we do with that shame? Just as Jesus suffered, was rejected, and died, so too he prepares disciples. But there's one difference. Jesus will always bear his disciples further than his disciples are called to bear him because he's Jesus, because he has nothing to deny, because he is the Christ. Because Jesus suffered, we know our suffering will end. Because Jesus was rejected by God, we know we will be accepted by him. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we too know we will rise. And that's what I love about this bittersweet warning in verse 26, where Jesus says this, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Sit in that for a second. Consider the weight of that. Those who shrink back from Jesus in the face of the world 
and do not repent are those to whom Jesus himself will shrink back in the day of judgment. That is a warning which should sober any of us. But for those who are unashamed, for those whose cross was only bearable, as Rosaria said, through her union with Christ, we receive a welcome. Our Jesus is not ashamed of us, though the world saw us smitten and afflicted. In fact, in the face of threefold sorrow, rejection, suffering, and death, what is the disciple met with? Glory, glory, and glory. Glory of the Son, glory of the Father, glory of the angels. Here is everything you've ever wanted. Here, hidden in Jesus Himself, is the fear of all you fear, or the, the promise of all you feared to lose. Here is something which cannot be taken away. If you're new here and you hear this call about discipleship, you've probably realized this is a terrible infomercial. But as C.S. Lewis said, he says, our problem is not that we want too much. Our problem is that we are all too easily satisfied. We spend our days playing with mud pies in the gutter when a vacation at sea is offered to us. And here, though, yes, we pick up a cross, though, yes, we encounter shame, though, yes, we are afflicted, accursed, and crushed, at the end is glory, glory, and glory. The finding of oneself hidden in the riches of Christ. And here is the final point this morning. This is the assurance of the kingdom. Look at verse 27. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Jesus gives the costly call of the expectation of the Christian, but then he gives them the wonderful assurance that he means what he says and that we are no fool, that the kingdom is coming. So remember, the kingdom is not here. The kingdom is not even the church. The kingdom is what will come. And when Jesus was here, he gave glimpses of that kingdom. That's why dead men came out of graves. That's why lame men walked. That's why the poor were taken care of. It's not that that would be the reality here, but it's when the kingdom of God came down here, that's what life's supposed to look like. That's what it looks like to live with God. And here Jesus says, some of these men are going to see the kingdom before they die. A glimpse of it. Now scholars hate this verse because no one agrees on what it means. Because it could mean, if you look in your Bible right after this, beginning in verse 28, which we're going to get to in November, it could, he could be speaking Peter, James, and John, who are going to be on a mountain, seeing Jesus transfigured in the voice of God, again, confirmed to his people Jesus' identity. It could be those disciples who bore the shame of public identity with Jesus and watched his cross, even if from afar, and heard Jesus say, Tetelestai, it is finished. It could be those who arrived first to the tomb to witness there was no body. It could be the collective group of disciples who saw and touched the resurrected Christ. It could be those who sat with Jesus for over a month and heard him teach and perform miracles and eat and dwell among them for 40 days after his resurrection. It could have been those who stood with Jesus as he bodily ascended to the right hand of the Father. It could have been those who gathered in fearful hiding in Jerusalem, received the gift of the Holy Spirit as the Pentecost feast in 
uh, ushered in an era of the Christian church, which we live in today. What's the point? Take your proof. The kingdom is coming. Glory, glory, and only glory. This is the proof that those who suffer will rise, that those who lose will gain, that those who give their lives will find their lives. Jesus' ministry is the shape and sound of our life of discipleship where we know seasons of sorrow, seasons of cross-bearing, they end in brilliant and beaming glory, glory, and glory. The kingdom of God is proven in Jesus. To all who wrestle under the uncomfortable weight of the cross, here is the promise that we who walk this road are no fools. For Paul says this in 2 Corinthians verses four, eight, or chapter four, verse eight through 11. We are afflicted in every way, but are not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are being given over to death for Jesus's sake so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Polycarp was kind of one of the first major figures of the early Christian church to be martyred. And as an old man, he was drugged before his executioner, and he was said, if you recant Jesus, you walk away. Get rid of this shame. Let him be accursed to you, and you'll go free. And this weak man said this powerful statement, 86 years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my savior and my king? Have you ever wondered if Jesus is faithful? Look at the cross for it looks like the valleys and peaks of your own life. He rose and so too will we. So come to him, hear his word, and do something with it. One day, this world will ask for your life. Jesus is asking for it today. But here is the blessed assurance that all we lose is no loss at all. So where does this cross? Where do your stooped shoulders and bent knees reveal themselves in your life? Where is your life markedly different because your savior is markedly different? Roger Udarian was the Montana man who grew up in Lewistown, graduated from Lewistown High School, who penned that poem I opened with. He went to college at Wheaton College, found four other men who had a dream of taking the gospel to a remote tribe in Ecuador. On December 19, 1955, he sat at base camp in South America with his wife, and he wrote this poem. There's a seeking of honest love drawn from a soul storm-tossed, a seeking for the gain of Christ to bless the blind, the beaten, the lost. Those who sought heavenly love were filled with joy divine, 
they walk today with Christ above. In that moment, Roger couldn't think of the last line. So he turned to his wife and he said, Barb, I'll finish it when I get home. 19 days later, Roger and his four friends were found dead on the Karari River at the hands of the men they sought to bring the gospel to. But his poem was finished. It was not finished in the resolution of the rhyme or the conclusion of the meter. It was finished in his homecoming described by Paul in Colossians 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, there you also will appear with him in glory. Dear church, let us hide ourselves in him. Let us place our lives, our shames, our fears, and all we are in the person of Christ. May we be the souls stormed tossed that draw from the gain of Christ and follow him knowing that glory, glory, and only glory is the hope of the kingdom and all those who belong to the Christ of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we can write poems that stir hearts towards loved ones. We can capture footage of restaurants which stir appetites of food. We can compose music that conjure up emotions of elation and fear, but we cannot create a desire for you apart from the Holy Spirit working in our midst. And so, Lord Jesus, reveal to us the shape of our need by showing us the shape of our Christ. And in so doing, empower us to walk unashamedly under the banner of the cross, knowing that though we bear you, you bear us further still, onward to glory and into the welcome of the Father. We pray this in your name. Amen.